Amen. Well, as you're having a seat, church, if you would, uh, grab your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Great job, band. Courtney, thanks for singing with us. Sounded great, everyone. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be beginning a new series uh, starting today on the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon ever preached in the history of the world. And we're going to be spending about three months walking through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, digging into the words of Jesus that he gives to us as he begins his public ministry. But before we do that, Josh mentioned it. I want to mention it too. Uh, Our giving report, we've got some room to make up. We're about $8,000 under budget for this quarter. Summer is always kind of Uh, Just a tough season for churches, especially church plants. And so, uh, like Josh said, if you don't have an ongoing plan to support the local church, and we are your church, I want to challenge you to begin praying through that. What does that look like for you individually, maybe for you as a family, to begin to lean in to support the local church? We have a goal to give away almost $40,000 this year toward external ministries. And so, uh, we hope to be able to do that, and that all comes from uh, the support of our church family, our local church body. So we've already given away almost half of that, I believe, maybe 15 to church planting, to microfinance ministries and different ministries that exist locally. And so we hope to and are praying that we continue to get to do more of that uh, as the months roll on toward the end of the year. So I challenge you all to be praying through that as a family. Um, Uh, especially with regard to the current numbers we're looking at. So um, that's my side note. Matthew chapter 5, beginning this new series, the Sermon on the Mount, leaning into Jesus' most famous sermon, the most famous sermon ever preached in the history of the world as he launches his earthly ministry. So these are some of the very first words that he gives to us as a sermon. So these are hugely important. So Jesus is setting up this big idea of what does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to live a life centered on the kingdom of God? What does the kingdom of God look like? What does it feel like? What do God's people, how do they interact with each other? What are we to be feeling? How are we supposed to be living this out in the world in which we operate day in and day out? And Jesus gives us these words in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, So we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 over the next three months. We're going to be just in the first 12 verses this morning. And we're in a very famous one known as the Beatitudes. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to dive in. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. This is Jesus speaking. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he went and sat down. And his disciples came to him. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth, taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. 
be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the question is that Jesus is beginning to answer as he launches into this sermon is how do we come alive to God? How do we as followers come alive to God and live in the realities of the kingdom of God? That's what the entire Bible is all about. That's what all of the Bible is about, is how do we live with, commune with, walk with, and be near to God? That's what the whole Bible is about, that those who were dead, who were weary and gone wayward in their sin, be brought back to life through God, and it's through Christ Jesus. And now Jesus is describing what that looks like when we come alive to God, how we are to operate as God's people. And so here's the reality about this, about what Jesus just said to us in his first sermon when he's talking to his disciples. Like, here's what it means to be alive to God, disciples. Here's, here's, here's what it's all about. Uh, it, it basically means flipping all of the world's values upside down. It's the upside down kingdom. It's your whole life is in upheaval if you really live in this way. Because the values and how this works and uh, what is being said here is totally contrary to what we think success and flourishing really means. Jesus just puts it all into upheaval. And so we're supposed to be reading these things thinking, What? This surely isn't the way. This is not how we think it should go. This is not how we think it should be. Jesus launching a new kingdom, right? Jesus launching a new people, a people of God through his teaching. And we're thinking, what, really? I remember when I first, uh, when I moved here to the Woodlands, it was my sophomore year of high school. I joined the football team, Texas football, Woodlands Highlanders, class of 2000 go, right? Our 20 year reunion's coming up. And so, but I remember I joined the football team and the first thing our coaches do is they weed out kind of all the loosely people that are like, oh yeah, I think I want to join the football team. And they basically just make you start running gassers until the whole team is like, almost dying and puking on the sidelines and kids are like crying and the coaches are cursing and yelling at you and they're like, this is what it's gonna take to win, there's no I in, all the like no I in team things, right? The, the whole nine, the coaches are just laying it on thick and what they're doing here is they're setting a brand new expectation for you when you walk into their, that place. This is what it's gonna take, you are no longer an individual, this is the new world order, the Highlander football team, so you better get used to it, right? And you're just like exhausted and you're wondering like, I don't know if I can do this anymore but the kids that stick around by the end of it somehow for some reason we're like throwing up in the corner but we're cheering we're gonna win we're gonna win state right I don't know like how coaches do this but they get you into such a fury that you're like buying into this new reality that you've just stepped into and it's you're like this doesn't seem this is not what I thought it was gonna be like right but by the end of it you're like but we're all in it together Jesus is launching his ministry, and he's setting the expectations for what does it mean to follow him. And it's nothing like what we think it should be. It's this whole new way of thinking. It's this whole new way of living. And listen to this. If what we read is true, if, if the words of Jesus right here are really true, then what that means is that just adding a little bit of God here and sprinkling in a little bit of Jesus over here in the margins does nothing for us. It's just meaningless. Just sort of the, 
the Bible belt, like just pay lip service, just sprinkle in a couple of coffee cup verses over here and I'll be fine. That is not what Jesus is calling us to as his people. But if we open up our lives to his control and what he wants for us and where he's leading us, he will be faithful to do the work that's needed in and through us. If we open up our lives and say, yes, Jesus, Lord, help me live in this way. I want to operate and I want to do the things that you're calling me to. He will do the work that we can't do. That's what he's telling us. But the way to get there is when, when we um, get on board, so to speak, with this, sometimes, and maybe you've experienced this, sometimes what Jesus does to help you see him most clearly is wreck your world first. He makes you hit like the very lowest point so you finally look up to him. And you're like, you're what I need. I've been chasing all these other things, but it's really you. Sometimes that's how he operates. And this is what the Beatitudes do, right? The start of Jesus's most famous sermon, it's meant to put the world upside down. It's meant to reorient us. It's meant to give us a new lens by which we view how to live and operate together as believers to honor and glorify God. It puts our feet on a whole new path and it seems crazy. Like I'm gonna say that out loud right now. Like the things Jesus just said, are, they're crazy. Like, they're, they just are. There's just no other way to, to, to get around it. Long ago, professor, his name was Henry Drummond. He was a Scottish biology professor, really bright guy. He later came to faith and became an evangelist. And he says this about following Jesus. He says, do not touch Christianity unless you are willing to seek the kingdom of God first. And he goes on, he says, I promise you a miserable existence if you seek it second. That's powerful. Do not touch Christianity unless you're willing to seek the kingdom of God first. He says, I promise you a miserable existence if you seek it second. If you just try to sprinkle in a little bit of God in the margins. And that, man, that, that just rings true as I hear that because in the Bible Belt South that we're kind of integrated into, I think we can look up and we can look around and we can find like blocks of, if you're anything like me, blocks of time in your own life, in my own life, where I've been seeking the kingdom of God second. And it just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's almost kind of pathetic. You try to just fit Jesus into these little margins, giving him second or even third place. The Beatitudes, Jesus is reorienting us. He's putting it front and center, right? How do we now come alive to God in this reality called the kingdom of God that he is wrapping us up into? That's what the whole Bible story is all about. God and us. And how God goes to great lengths to make us alive to him. See, Adam, at the very beginning, started to die for the very first time when the creation felt more real and rewarding to him than his creator. That's when death started creeping in. 
By contrast, as you go on along in the Bible, you got Abraham. He's looking back on his entire life, and he sums it up this way. The Lord before whom I have walked. He realizes it. It's like, the Lord's been with me. Job, when he has this great breakthrough, he's like looking back. He has this great breakthrough with God. He says this. I, I, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. It's like, I finally see you. I had just heard you, and I thought I really knew, but now I finally have seen you. Jesus says it this way, the risen Christ. He says, this is, this is a great statement, if anyone. That's a great way to start this. There is a lot of room in between that statement. If anyone. There's room for you. There's room for me. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Alive to God. We can have Jesus at that level. So the Bible's telling us. So the Beatitudes show us where we can always find God. Did you know that? The Beatitudes show us where we can always find God. Not where we think he should be, but where he is. And the key word here is blessed. The opposite word that the Bible uses is woe. So the Bible sometimes says, woe to you. And that means like, trouble, watch out. And here's the opposite. Jesus is saying, blessed are you. Right? This is, uh, we don't really say this word anymore. This is sort of, sounds kind of like Bible talk. But this is Jesus' way of saying, way to go. Or congratulations. It's this like celebratory word. Blessed, way to go. You've done it. Congratulations. Oh my goodness. Yes. Right? And the Beatitudes are Jesus' way of saying congratulations to all the wrong people. The ones that we, we wouldn't think we would say congratulations to. It's this stark reality. This is stark contrast of such a joyous word. Congratulations. And then he says it to all of these people that we wouldn't think would deserve a congratulations. It's like, are you sure about this? These congratulations to the poor, to the meek, to the mourners. These are the people that they think have nothing to offer God. They're kind of at the end of their rope, so to speak. And they're like, I don't know what else. I got, I got nothing. I have nothing to bring to him. Right? They're broken over their sin. They're broken over other sin. They're tired. They're not throwing their weight around anymore. All they care about is just getting right with God because that's all they've got left in life. They're not seeking power. They're not seeking conquest. They're not seeking a platform. They're just sort of these forgotten about people, seemingly. And Jesus looks at him and says, congratulations. You've done it. He says, you're the very ones God is rejoicing over. The world has it wrong. The world has its own version of the Beatitudes, right? 
And we've seen this contrast between the kingdom that Jesus is describing and the kingdom of this world. You just have to like live and you just turn on the news. You just have to operate in this world and you can see the stark contrast between what Jesus is asking of us and what this world rewards us for, right? So what we can do is you can take the Beatitudes and you can flip them and you can get sort of the world's Beatitudes or the unbeatitudes. Um. And uh, one of my favorite pastors, a guy named Ray Ortland, he wrote these. So I didn't make these up because he's a lot smarter than me. But I thought they were really brilliant. And so he, he says these are the unbeatitudes of the world. If you were to flip Jesus' beatitudes on the world. Also, side note, beatitudes. Where do we get that? You're like, that's not even in the text. Why do we call it the beatitudes? Like, where does that word even come from? Beatitudes is simply uh, the Latin word for blessed or blessed that's translated the English word beatitudes. So that's why it's titled beatitudes, if you're ever wondering that, like I was. Like, why is it called that? So there you go. The unbeatitudes would go something like this. The world's way of viewing these. The world's way of saying, getting a congratulations. Congratulations to the entitled, for this world lies at, their, at its feet. Congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they always win. Congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the ladder higher and higher and higher. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Congratulations to the argumentative. Facebook, anyone? For they shall get in the last word. And congratulations to the popular, for they will get their way. Isn't that our world? It's often how our world thinks. Those are the people that get the kudos. Those are the people that get the congratulations. And the contrast between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world, it's it's obvious, but here's the problem. We just have to choose. Which one are we going to line our lives by? Which one are we going to live for? The world has its allure. All those congratulations come with some accolades. Right? And the problem is, is that as Jesus writes this, um, you can't have a little bit of both. You can't, ha- you can't be on both sides of the fence. You can't get it a little bit from the world and then a little, sprinkle a little bit in from Jesus. The Bible later will call that lukewarm. You're going to have one or you're going to have the other. You'll reject one in its entirety and you will embrace the other in its entirety. And so Jesus is calling us today to switch sides. This is like almost a, a defector sermon that he's calling his people to for the very first time. He's like, put away all these things of this world and this is what it means to be a follower of me. He's calling you to be an unbeliever in all these other things and a believer in what he says is most important. He says, follow me in this new way. This is, and I'm building a new kingdom, a kingdom people. And he's not talking, catch this. We do this so often. He's not talking about tweaking your life a little bit here and a little bit there. He's not talking about that. He's talking about all of you. He's asking for all that you are. So the Beatitudes are set up like this. First, it's congratulations, and then it's followed by a promise. 
It's a congratulations and then a promise throughout this whole section. And so the Beatitudes of Jesus show us where we can be free of the, the, the trappings of the world. We get free from what we think, what we're sort of trained to think this is how it should work, and how we can come alive to God and live in the manner that Jesus would have us, right? And so here's the context. Then we're going to jump right in, then we'll be done. The context for this chapter, for chapter 5, comes right before in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And he begins his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 4 by saying these words. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that's a a great summary message of Jesus' entire ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is at hand. Again, Jesus is talking about, I'm, I'm building a kingdom people. I'm building a new people, a new kingdom, a new way of thinking, a new way of, of, of operating in life. So repent of what you thought it was because I'm ushering in something new. So the kingdom, so catch, a lot of times we hear the kingdom of heaven and we just think, oh, heaven, one day I'll get up to the kingdom of heaven. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus comes to earth. He's incarnate, God with us, comes to earth, lives and breathes and operates in the world in which we live and breathe and operate. And he says, repent, turn from what you thought was the way, because the kingdom of God is near, is at hand. It's coming. I'm setting it up, he's saying. And so that means, another way, we would say it like this, heaven on earth. Jesus wants to bring heaven to earth. The principles of the kingdom of God, his rule, his way, his beauty, his kindness, his view of uh, the everyone having the image of God, being treated with dignity and respect and love, kindness, forgiveness, all these things. He's saying, I'm bringing heaven's rule here to earth. How do we know that? Because he goes on, even in what we're going to get to later, in the Lord's prayer. And the Lord's prayer says this, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's like, I want to bring the will of God, the way of God, down here through a new people. It's not just repent for the kingdom of God is near, so kind of like live how you've always lived, and one day you'll get up there and get to experience it. Jesus is saying, I'm gathering a new people, and these, the realities of God, um, the attitudes of God, the grace and mercy of God, God's people will begin to be living, breathing realities of what it means to see glimpses of heaven on earth. And I'm gonna do that through a new people. And he calls it a kingdom. We might call it like a culture today. Business books write all about business culture. This, this is how you establish great. Jesus is saying a, a group of people are gonna live out this reality. He calls it a kingdom. So the Beatitudes are describing what repent for the kingdom of God is at hand looks like every day for us. Jesus starts his ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he describes what that looks like for God's people in the Beatitudes. Jesus is saying that it's the repentant who the future belongs to. That's who the kingdom people are. Or the old church word is the penitent. That's who the kingdom reality belongs to. 
who repent because the kingdom of God is at hand and then begin to live in this way. They, def they deflect from the patterns of the world and embrace the realities of Jesus and his kingdom way. Beatitudes are a whole new culture. Jesus calls it kingdom. So we either have to accept the upheaval that this creates in us, in our lives, because it can create a lot, or we settle for just sort of minor modifications. And I would submit to you that little minor modifications where you sort of put God in the margins of your life uh, change nothing because they're just, they have no weight and no power. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. Now, we know that the Beatitudes can't be divided up because the first one and the last one end the same way. They're meant to be bookends, meaning all of these go together. The first one ends, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one ends in verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying all of this way, this new way of living, it sort of all goes together. It's not like, well, just pick out a couple of those that you sort of like and run with those and then you'll be fine. It's no, this is sort of, this is God's people. These are what kingdom people do. This is how they operate. So Jesus is calling all of us to recenter our lives on God. And he says, this is how you do it. So the rest of our time, I just want to look at each one and then we'll be done. All right, so verse three, we're going to jump into these. So these are, these are I, I said all that because this is a big deal. Like these are a big deal. These are not easy, but these are a big deal. This is, these reorient us. These can cause some major upheaval in our lives, but they're worth it. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this word here, poor, it's not because they just, they only have a little bit. They're poor because they have nothing. The word poor here is blessed are those that have nothing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They've squandered their chance at life and now they're turning to Jesus, essentially. And one day they will look at a cross and they'll see their king dying for rebellious, wayward subjects and they can realize, because they have nothing, that is like, I have no claim on that. I didn't earn it. I'm not on the preferred list. I don't have anything. And Jesus looks down at them and says, great, congratulations. Way to go. And they, they open their empty hands with nothing in them. And Jesus says, you're blessed. I'm happy for you. Because all you have now is me. I'm your only boast. And what I find so amazing about him starting the Sermon on the Mount in this fashion, this is, I mean, y'all are looking at me like crazy. This is crazy. These are crazy words, right? What it's so incredible about this is Jesus is launching a whole new kingdom, right? This whole new idea of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then his, the ones that he's calling for, the ones that he's asking, the ones that he's saying, congratulations, you've done it, have nothing to contribute. They have nothing to contribute. How on earth is this going to succeed? How will this ever work? The ones he's calling and saying, congratulations, you've done it, can bring him nothing and offer him nothing. It seems backwards. That's not how we start things. That's not how I would think to start something, right? 
We like to start big. We like to look impressive. We like to look cool. We like to like, have impressive people. There's even a new industry in the social constructs of the world that people's jobs are now called social influencers. And they have influence and they have so much say that you can pay them to uh, promote whatever it is you're starting because they have great influence. Jesus starts with people that have nothing. Essentially, he starts a kingdom movement with what would be modern-day equivalents of dropouts or with, with gamblers, um, with sinners. Because here's how he set it up. Here's how he set it up. The king provides everything. So he gets all the glory, and we just keep getting mercy. So he set it up. The king provides everything for us, and he has, so that he gets all the glory, and we just are recipients of mercy, and that makes us humble people. That makes us good people to be around because we get to show others, this is, who, this is who did this for me. You've got to come be a part of this. You don't have to have it all together. In fact, you can have nothing at all like me, and he will richly pour out his blessing on you. And say, congratulations, the God above can say that to you. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus looks at those whose hearts are broken, who have broken hearts, places of brokenness. And he says, I'm proud of you. When your heart breaks for that which is broken around you. And he says, I'll comfort you. I've got the comfort you need. When you look at the brokenness of our world, just turn on the news. If your heart is broken for it, you have even places in your own heart that you just need mending and you're broken and you just feel like, I, I don't know where to go from here. Jesus says, I'll comfort you. Congratulations. You don't have to turn to all the other things because I've got you. When your heart breaks for that which is broken around you, congratulations, that's a good thing. When you don't just turn a blind eye to brokenness in the world. I'll comfort you. And I may even send you to those who are broken like you to help them and have you point the way to them. We would never start a movement like that, would we? I've never seen an ad saying, this product will make you a great mourner. No. We're like, oh, we don't like to talk about mourning. We don't like to be talking about comforting where we're broken. That just seems uncomfortable. In fact, you may be sitting there now like, yeah, I'm really uncomfortable right now. I wish I didn't have to come this morning. We just don't like it. We like to just, we only post pretty happy puppy things and kittens and like fun stuff, right? We don't, we don't like to talk about brokenness and mourning and us, our, our great need to be comforted. We come into this kingdom that Jesus is describing wounded because we're sinful. And the world around us is full of it. And we find that only Jesus can comfort us. Our hearts are wounded and we watch the news. Only Jesus can comfort those in all those broken places. Verse five. <coughs> Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is another tough one. Who wants that, right? I'm like, blessed are the meek. I don't want to be a doormat. I don't like the sound of that. 
I want to be a tough guy. I kind of want to be a dude that can handle myself. That's why I wear cowboy boots. I just kind of, I like to be ready for whatever the world might throw at me, right? I don't want to be a guy caught in flip-flops when boots are required. That's sort of my methodology in life. I never know when things might go south and the boots are what I need, right? I'm not a flip-flop guy. I've crossed over. I'm a boot guy. I want to be, right? I just, right? Blessed are the meek. You mean I just should wear flip-flops everywhere, Jesus? He did wear sandals. There, maybe there's something there. We'll not get in there. But you're like, what? This is this, I don't like this one. I just, I like to be tough. I like to, you know, we're like an open carry state. It's like we just, we should be able to carry our Glock and wear boots and everyone stay away from me. That's just kind of how we should roll. Jesus, be, like, you're calling me to be meek. And I think this is, you know, you go to the Greek lexicon, and that's what I did. I'm like, maybe there's a different translation. Maybe this, we can sort of spiritually unwind this one and find out it really means just be really tough. No, it just means meek, right? A, a, an example of this that's used is like a bridled horse. Ooh, I don't like that. I think Jesus wants us to face this word. There's something in here that he wants us to face, wants me to face. Um, Jesus was willing to suffer unjustly without retaliating. He absorbed suffering and kept trusting God because he was meek. Jesus was meek and he suffered for it. But he also rose again. When you think about the, the horse analogy, a bridled horse, a horse is this enormously powerful creature and a measly, tiny human can get on it and ride it because it's bridled. That horse could easily crush any person that tried to get on it, but it's power under control. And that horse exerts its great force and might and strength and power for the good of that person that's riding it for victory oftentimes. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is, he has not abandoned his power. He is still the most powerful force this world has ever known. He's God himself. Colossians says that he formed the whole cosmos he was there at the beginning. Jesus is all powerful, but when he came to earth, he did not use his power for his own good. He set it aside, went to a cross for us. For us. Great power and strength for others. The renewal of the entire universe began at a cross where meekness hung great strength hung for you and I. That's what Jesus did. And he says this. In that moment, can you imagine? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Not mine, but yours. Verse six. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So church, are you longing for God to do something in your life today, this morning, this year, this month, this week, in the next five minutes, whatever it is? Are you longing for God to move? Jesus is saying, I'm glad you're here. You're in the right place. 
Uh, also catch this. This is something that, that hit me when I was reading this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That means we don't have to be ashamed of our unfulfilled desires. If we're just, we're just constantly praying and longing for God to move somewhere, but maybe he just simply hasn't yet, that's okay. Jesus says, blessed are you. You're hungering and you're thirsting for righteousness. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. You'll be satisfied. Jesus says, those are the best parts of you. Keep leaning in. Keep thirsting for more of the kingdom of God. Keep longing for more righteousness. Keep having big dreams and hungering and thirsting for more. That's good. That's good. He says, you'll be satisfied. <laughs> On the flip side, complacent Christianity is not where it's at. That's not a part of the kingdom of God. He says, hunger and thirst for God to move, for God to do something. The deal breaker is not even unrighteousness. Like when you stumble and fall, so long as you're, you're still getting up and hungering and thirsting for God to move and intervene and do something, even when we stumble and fall, he can still, his mercy and grace covers, but you're still pressing forward. God, I God, forgive me, I've, I've fallen, but I know your grace and mercy are new and they abound, but I'm still longing and hoping for this to happen, for righteousness. I think it's, I think it's the, um, yeah, I'm fine, kind of attitude that Jesus is like, don't have, that's not, that's not the kingdom of God. Yeah, I'm fine, let's kind of keep coasting along and doing our thing. He's like, no, have a hunger and a thirst for the kingdom of heaven. Have a drive, have a hope, have a dream for righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Jesus also says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Mercy is a must in the kingdom of God. This is difficult because it is not easy to forgive. Mercy requires forgiveness. It was not easy for God to forgive. Right? Mercy is one of the greatest powers in all of the world. When undeserving people get mercy, when undeserving people are forgiven... Mercy abounds. God is famous. Catch this. God is famous for being merciful toward sinful, broken people. That's what he's famous for. What if we were as well? So he's saying, blessed are the merciful, for they also shall receive mercy. That is not easy. Verse 8, almost done. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not just outwardly pure. The, the, the Pharisees were described as just outwardly pure. Jesus says that's hypocrisy. So the big question today is, what does pure in heart mean? 
What does that mean for you? Not just, not just what we seem to be, but what we really are. Not what image we put out for those to perceive us in, but who we really are. Pure of, are we pure of heart? Religion is all about gaining reputation for being a good Christian without actually changing. That's religion. That's religion. And all of us, myself included, are tempted toward that hypocrisy that Jesus calls out. God knows everything about us. And Jesus says, be pure in heart, not just in show. Not just in show. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Where God is, peace abounds. Here in this broken world that we exist in, that we work in, that we operate in, that we interact with each other in, God is here to tell us that in this broken world, God himself wants to create the Bible word, the Old Testament word is shalom, peace and wholeness, and beauty. That's what he's longing to create with us as a people. That's what he wants to do, is, is for us then to be peacemakers of his peace that he wants to bring down here on earth. Where there is, there is chaos, he says, believers, this new kingdom people should come and bring the peace of God amongst the chaos that operates in the world today. Um. I was thinking about this. What if we, what if we stood out uh, not for how angry we were at all these different issues as believers? What if we were not known for just what all the things were against, but we were known as those that bring the shalom of God wherever we go, the peace of God? Um, if all we are known for is launching boycotts, Jesus says we will not be called sons of God. Let's be famous for how peaceable we are. Not just passive, but the peace of God. Kingdom peace. His kingdom, his rule, his way. That's what brings lasting peace. And finally, verse 10. Blessed are those who persecuted, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wish this one wasn't in here. All the other ones are so beautiful, and you can kind of wax on about them and write poetry about them, and they're kind of upside down. They're almost like, stick it to the world. Yeah, we're going to live in this manner. We all sort of like long for that. We dream about a reality that feels like that. We want to be part of that. That's, this is like, yes, that is right and good and true and beautiful, and it represents God. And then we get to this one, and we're like, ooh, persecuted. I don't want to be a part of that. I mean, wouldn't you think if all the things we were just described, like meekness, bringing the peace and shalom of God down to earth, not bringing any arrogance or attitude to the kingdom of God, but just bringing our emptiness, knowing that God fills us, being a merciful, forgiving people and letting the mercy of God abound amongst us and among all the rest of us. Don't you think the world would just roll out a red carpet and say, welcome, we're so glad you're here, finally. Jesus says that's not how it will always happen. Um, 
he says that the world will be antagonistic against this at times. And uh, he said that some people will be persecuted, will suffer because they want to live in this manner. Because they're called to, because Jesus has moved them in such a way that they want to be part of the kingdom of God. Living for Jesus is not a popularity contest, but it is eternally rewarding, even in the midst of a world that doesn't understand what you're doing and will hurl insults and will even at times hurl violence against you. So what is the reward that Jesus tells us? He wraps it up. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what, what, does, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the culture that God is wanting to build? How is Jesus ushering this in? What does it look like? What does it mean? What does it feel like? Who does Jesus bless? Who does Jesus look at and smile and say, congratulations? It's not what we think. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and for thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray, church. Lord Jesus, these are difficult things to read, but they are beautiful and they are good and they are true. God, I just pray for us as a church, as a little outpost of your kingdom, God, would you do this in our midst? Lord, we can't do it on our own. So we, like that very first one says, that we say, like like many that have come before us, God, we are poor in spirit, but you fill us because we long for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may you make us into a people that would bring the very peace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the glory of God in small ways amongst each other and in the world in which we live and operate. And may that be an aroma of Christ that people want to know more about. Help us do that. Well, we wanna be part of that. Do that in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing to him, church.